Acts chapter 5. What's the most exciting thing that can happen in the life of a church? By the end of our passage tonight, we're going to see the apostles delighted in a new way that we haven't seen so far in Luke's account. They're really excited. And it's after they've been brutally beaten by the enemies of the gospel. Yes, in the story, it's persecution that caused significant excitement that day. Of course, Acts has already been a nonstop thrill ride of miracles and multitudes and powerful messages that are changing lives. But we'll see it's a flogging that got the apostles worked up that they were worked up in a way that Luke simply hasn't shown us before. Now, it's true that the church in general was characterized by joy in the things that they were doing. We were told that early on. Uh, It's obvious that there would have been palpable anticipation whenever they gathered because, after all, there was all sorts of signs and wonders happening. And sometimes when they had church, people died. That was, you know, so there's probably a lot of anticipation and excitement. I don't know if it was always good kind of excitement. And it was clear that they were headed toward a clash with the Jewish religious leaders. The Christians knew this opposition was coming. It didn't stop them. And I don't mean to say that the apostles were uninterested in any of these other dramatic things that we've been reading about. Of course, they were, I'm sure, excited about the people that were getting saved and the signs and the wonders and all the work that God was doing and how the Spirit was using them and filling them and directing them and all of that. But as we're reading the story, Luke, the author, characterizes their response to the suffering in a way that he hasn't described them before. He just hasn't. Never before has he said, this happened, whether it's Pentecost or a miracle or one of the big messages where thousands of people are saved. None of that. After any of those situations did Luke say, and they were full of cheerful delight after it happened. But that's what he's going to say tonight. The whole situation here is made even more surprising when we realize that this beating could have easily been avoided, completely avoidable. But the apostles submitted with meekness and boldness. And rather than turn their backs on the name of Jesus, they turned their backs to receive their stripes and shared with him in his sufferings. There are a lot of lessons in this little story. One is that our spiritual effectiveness as Christians and our personal happiness as Christians, those things are not dependent on my feeling good or our being comfortable. It's just not. Uh, Another lesson is that our rights are not as important as being a part of God's enterprise. That's a consistent theme throughout the book of Acts. The faithful servants of Jesus Christ always were willing to set down their rights in order to be a part of what God was doing, uh, even if that meant laying down their lives. And the third lesson is that for the Christian, boldness and meekness are the prescription for effective ministry and for faithful service to the king. So we're going to pick back up in the middle of what we call verse 21 of chapter 5. And there we read this. When the high priest and those who were with him arrived, they convened the Sanhedrin, the full senate of the sons of Israel, and sent orders to the jail to have them brought. Uh, I'm sure some of you followed. Washington was all abuzz today with the impeachment proceedings going live in public. You can stream it if you wanted to. All the key players got themselves camera ready. I bet the barber shops around Capitol Hill were busy yesterday. They got themselves camera ready. They got themselves situated in those 
fabulous overstuffed leather chairs. Have you seen the chairs the congressmen sit in? Man, they're like magnificent. You get, a, you get like a glimpse of them behind their shoulder and it's this beautiful like camel colored like overstuffed leather chair. So they're all there and all of their pomp and all of that. Some of these powerful individuals were clearly brimming with enthusiasm over the proceedings. Others were undoubtedly more reluctant about what was going on. No one is sure how it's all going to work out yet, despite what the news wants to tell you. And the same thing was happening that day in Jerusalem in Acts 5. The Sanhedrin had gathered from far and wide to address this issue of what we would call the way at this point. This group of individuals who followed after Jesus of Nazareth, who claimed he was risen from the dead, and were preaching this message throughout the city. Sanhedrin, if you aren't familiar, was the uh, ruling body over Jewish affairs. It was like the Supreme Court over Israel. And so this is a big deal. They're all getting together to deal with this issue. Now, we know that there were some men of integrity in the group, men like Nicodemus or Joseph of Arimathea. But unfortunately, the council was dominated at the time by jealous, carnal, wicked men. Uh, men who were not above using conspiracy and lies and murder to keep their power if need be. Verse 22 says, But when the temple police got there, they did not find them in the jail. So they returned and reported, We found the jail securely locked with the guards standing in front of the doors. But when we opened them, we found no one inside. And the way this miracle worked is kind of interesting. Miracles are just super interesting if we kind of step back and see how they're described in the Bible. Um, ob they're, they're obvious and they're overt so often, but the way that this one worked, even though the miracle was obvious, the sort of realization of how things happened was pretty interesting. We're told back in verse 19 of this chapter that the angel, quote, opened the doors of the jail and the guys passed through. So the 12 apostles weren't just raptured out of the jail, yet it's clear that that morning, uh, the doors were locked and they were closed. No one uh, saw that they were gone. And we were told it was the common jail. I find it hard to believe that there was nobody else in jail that night. Maybe it's like Mayberry. There's just the one drunk guy in there, right? But I'm guessing there were some other folks maybe in the vicinity. Certainly there were guards, but they didn't seem to think it was odd that suddenly a room that had been full of 12 men was silent all morning. But they, they, they were standing there in front of locked doors, unaware that the cell was empty. And you know, on a devotional level, I think there's a little nugget here for us. I think we can be encouraged to remind ourselves that God is often working in ways that we cannot perceive. That's obvious. We know that. But right now, he may be opening a door for you or for others that we just can't see yet. Maybe we're in the middle of the night of that situation and the door is being opened and we're just not aware of it yet. God is working. Keep praying, keep trusting in him, keep hoping in him, and remember that he can open whatever door he wants to. And I also find it interesting that apparently no one in the Sanhedrin had come through the temple courtyards or the walkways on their way into the Hall of Hewn Stones that morning. They met in this, uh, what they call the Hall of Hewn Stones. They are in the temple complex, but I guess they took the VIP entrance, the back door. Uh, they didn't come through where all the people were. If they had, they would have seen uh, where the apostles were because they went immediately at first light into the temple complex and started teaching and preaching. And it just shows us the Christians, what we've seen so far in the book of Acts, the Christians were constantly among the people. 
Uh, they didn't hide away. They didn't sequester themselves. They didn't go say, well, we, let's go build our own cathedral somewhere so that we don't have to mingle with anybody. Let's separate ourselves out and get away from all of these gross, yucky people. They didn't do that. They were constantly among the people sharing the good news. And we see here, by contrast, the Sadducees were not, and the Pharisees and these other so-called religious elite. Uh, you know, there's all those terrible stories about the kinds of things that Pharisees say would do. Uh, Jesus kind of exemplified it in the parable of the Good Samaritan, right? Uh, the priest came by, I don't want to, oh, I got to cross the street, I don't want to be by this person who's dying on the road. Same thing with the Levite, right? And you hear historical stories about how the Pharisees, uh, we're told, would sometimes when they would see a leper start throwing stones at them because, oh, I don't want to be made ceremonially unclean. And it's such a sad, sad uh, contrast. Uh, those people that claimed to be representing God and claimed to have knowledge of God and claimed to say, oh, I have a direct line to God, and if you listen to me, you know, you would have all of the blessings of God, and yet they're separated out from the people. They clearly have no interest in ministering to people or meeting people where they're at, not so the Christians. And so, uh, interesting contrast. Verse 24, as the commander of the temple police and the chief priests heard these things, they were baffled about them as to what would come of this. The scene's pretty comical. The commander and the chiefs here with all their pomp and all their power and all their self-importance have no idea what's going on. They don't know where their prisoners are. They don't know what the outcome is going to be of such a bewildering series of events. Uh, it seemed for a moment like they got all dressed up for nothing. I was trying to imagine what it would be like if at the impeachment proceedings today they convened and banged their little gavel and they said, okay, where's the first witness? Yeah, there are no witnesses. Okay, well, where's this person? Yeah, then nobody showed up. Nobody showed up. We don't know where anybody is. We don't know what we're doing. And, and there's just people sitting in a bunch of overstuffed leather chairs. It'd be embarrassing and weird and strange. Much more so, we weren't, they're not just talking about, you know, witnesses who were called of their own accord, but uh, talking about prisoners that were kept under lock and key, and they say, yeah, they're gone. We have no idea where they are, and there's no hole in the wall behind the movie poster, right? They didn't tunnel out in the middle of the night, Shawshank style. Uh, verse 25 says, someone came and reported to them, look, the men you put in jail are standing in the temple complex, and they're teaching the people. Christianity in the book of Acts was bold. Uh, Luke goes out of his way to try to explain that to us. Their boldness had been seen by the Sanhedrin back in chapter 4 when Peter and John were first on trial. It says when they saw their boldness. After that situation, the church had, had an immediate prayer meeting, right? And what did they pray for? They prayed for more boldness, which heaven was very happy to immediately supply. In the very last book, uh, last verse of the book, we'll see that Paul, the apostle, continued to proclaim the kingdom of God with, quote, full boldness. And so this is a theme that Luke wants you and I to pick up on, the boldness of the Christians. They were bold people, bold in the Lord. What does that mean? Now, biblical boldness is not just an attitude. It's not just swagger. It's not just thinking, oh, I have confidence in what I'm doing. It's more than that. It's not just an attitude. It's an activity. In the Bible, boldness or the boldness of God's people is the frank public preaching of the things concerning the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what boldness means. It doesn't just mean being self-assured or feeling like we're right all the time. Uh, that's something else. Biblical boldness, the boldness of the church was the activity of, of publicly preaching the gospel, uh, the things concerning Jesus Christ with frankness and with directness and with confidence in what they were saying. Uh, 
That's what the apostles were doing. They were teaching the people. And that assumes, of course, that we have something of actual importance to convey to people, that there's actually a message, that there's something that people need to be instructed in. And it's a good reminder that the purpose of Christianity and the purpose of preaching and teaching, uh, the purpose of Christian ministry is not simply to entice or entertain or impress or tickle or even just alleviate some discomfort. That's not the goal of Christianity. It is to instruct people in the truth that they might live and not die. And God sends us out with a message, a message that's essential, a message that actually matters. And it's the message that concerns the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, ironically, it should have been the high priest there in the court of the temple instructing the people. That was his job. Uh, Malachi 2 verse 7 says this, the words of a priest's lips should preserve knowledge of God and people should go to him for instruction for the priest is the messenger of the Lord. How sad, right? So it's a, such an a, amazing picture here. You have the whole Sanhedrin. Apparently not one of them bothered to walk through the corridors where people would be, people who were there seeking after the God of Israel. Uh, they were supposed to be the ones giving the message of God to the people and to the wider world by extension. They bypassed all of those people. They get all their regalia on to put on this phony trial to try to silence men who had done nothing wrong, men who God was clearly using, men who uh, are, you know, are giving all the glory to God. And instead, what's happening? They don't even know what's going on. Uh, they're like, where are our prisoners? Prisoners, what did they do? Nothing. They just are popular and we don't like that. Hey, isn't it your job to be God's messenger to people? Yeah, but I'm more busy making sure that I'm more popular than the next guy over. Despite the fact that there were people in the temple that day, the high priest and the other priest didn't seem to be concerned with teaching them or speaking God's message to them. Instead, he and the others were scheming ways to try to regain their clout and influence and stranglehold over the city. In the meantime, God really did have a message that he wanted people to hear. And since these supposed servants in the Sanhedrin weren't willing to deliver God's message, the Lord was pleased to send fishermen to preach in their stead. That's great. Verse 26, then the commander went with the temple police and brought them in without force because they were afraid the people might stone them. This may be the most important verse in the entire section. Uh, at least it is for our thinking tonight. What we just read was that the apostles went with these men willingly. They did not have to go. It was clear that they could have said, no, man, we're not going with you. Have a nice day. But they went willingly. It was obvious that the hearts of the people there in the temple, I'm sure there was quite a crowd at this point, they were on the side of the accused. It was clear that the power of God was with these apostles. It was clear that jail cells could not hold them and that the powers that be could not intimidate them. So listen, in this moment, the apostles are the ones in charge of the situation, right? There's so many people, and it's so obvious that these guys have power, the real power of heaven behind them. They've just been supernaturally set free. Angels are helping them out doing things, right? And then the temple police come, and the, the, the situation is so palpable, everything is so intense that the temple police are afraid of the people that say, hey, if we put our hands on these guys, they're going to kill us. Will you come with us, please? 
because we would like to put you on trial for nothing. The apostles could have made a scene. They could have stirred up a crowd. They could have stood in protest. They could have refused to go. They could have just ignored these police, just went on home. No thanks. See you next time. Instead, they willingly walked into the den of lions. It's pretty amazing. They went back into the killer's lair on purpose. They knew what was waiting for them on the other side of the doors. They knew why the Sanhedrin was calling them together. They had already done this dog and pony show once. Before it was just Peter and John. said, you're not allowed to talk about Jesus anymore. And they had threatened them a bunch, a bunch, a bunch. They were doing it again. They got arrested. They knew what was waiting for them. They weren't surprised. It wasn't a mystery. Those who had murdered their Lord and threatened them in no uncertain terms were now saying, now, hey, come stand before us because we got a few things we want to accuse you of. And what did the apostles do? You know, in that moment, at least so far in the book of Acts, I'd say that the apostles were maybe never so powerful. Angels are setting them free from jail. They're working signs and wonders left and right. The people of Jerusalem, if they would have said, kill those dudes, they would have killed those dudes. They would have been able to control the multitudes of Jerusalem and started a real uprising had they wanted to. But at the same time, they had perhaps never been so full of the Lord's meekness. Uh, they exemplify the faithful remnant that is described and prophesied in Zephaniah chapter 3, verse 12. There we read this prophecy. It says, I will leave in your midst a meek and humble people, and they shall trust in the name of the Lord. That very well describes the behavior of the apostles that morning. In the Bible, meekness is more powerful than titles or positions or prisons or weapons. It's one of the most powerful things in all of God's creation. The believers here were supernaturally bold and simultaneously supernaturally meek, both together. Verse 27, after they brought them in, they had them stand before the Sanhedrin, and the high priest asked, didn't we strictly order you not to teach in this name? And look, you filled Jerusalem with your teaching and are determined to bring this man's blood on us. High priest makes a wonderfully comical statement here. You are determined to bring this man's blood on us. Why? Well, certainly don't know why, sir. Maybe it was because you had him illegally arrested, illegally tried, illegally beaten, and then demanded his crucifixion when Pilate tried to release him. Or maybe it was when you and the other leaders of Israel shouted out, his blood be on us and our children, back in Matthew 27. These actual guys, this actual group of people actually said that and stirred up the people of Jerusalem to say that. They said, his blood be upon us and our children. Thanks, Dad. But now the high priest says, well, you're trying to accuse us of killing this guy, Jesus. You notice he won't even say Jesus' name. He says twice, this man. He's so disgusted by Jesus Christ, he won't even utter his name. The high priest said they had filled Jerusalem with their teaching. Well, what was the message that had filled the city? It's an important, uh, an important statement that he made there. So what was, what was the city full of? It was the message that Jesus Christ is the Messiah. We've seen Peter's message. Peter's the one speaking in all of these passages. That's the things that Luke is recording. The other guys are talking too. I mean, there's all kinds of teaching going on every single day, house to house. It, it's Peter's words that Luke uh, focuses in on for us here in the narrative. But his message is always the same, right? Whether he's in front of uh, crowds or individuals or powerful people or whoever, it's always the same. Now, Jesus Christ is the Messiah that he died and then rose again and offers salvation to all who will repent of their sins and turn to him for forgiveness. That judgment is coming, that, but that God is willing to save. 
That's the same message. That's the message that was filling the city of Jerusalem. You know, today the most popular teachings, or many of the popular teachings, are largely about self, right? You look at the popular books, the popular podcasts, the popular teachers. What's the message about? Is it about Jesus Christ? It's about self. It's about me. It's about your feeling. It's about my feeling. It's about what I have and what I get, what I can pile up for myself. Your best life now. How Jesus wants us to be happy and successful and achieve all of your dreams, that kind of stuff. It's a, so often a human-oriented message rather than a Christ-oriented message. And listen, if, when you're out there uh, and you are thinking, I want to get into a new podcast, or when somebody says, hey, you got to listen to this pastor, or hey, here's a book you should read, the, the thing we want to ask is, okay, what is this message about? We don't need to be afraid, but we also need to be wise and think, okay, let me evaluate what's really being said and who's saying it. And, and here's a very simple test. Could you hand the book that was handed to you to a Syrian Christian who's about to be murdered for their faith. Your best life now! Well, <laughs> everything I have has been burned up because I said, yes, I'm a Christian. Or the underground church in China that's being, you know, continually attacked and crushed upon. You know, could you hand someone that podcast and say, take a listen to this guy who talks to you about how to, you know, have everything you want, be healthy and wealthy and and that's what God really wants for your life. Of course not. The true gospel message is able to be preached in Orange County as well as to Middle Eastern Christians facing martyrdom, right? The message is not different. The message of the gospel isn't different if you're in 14th century Iceland or 21st century Hong Kong, right? I mean, it, that, the gospel message is true at all times and all places to all people. And so the focus of what we preach and the focus of what we promote to others must be Jesus Christ and his doctrine, his death and his resurrection and his offer of salvation to people who are trapped in sin. That's the message that we should be filling the world with, not this other junk uh, that tickles people's ears. Verse 29 says, but Peter and the apostles replied, we must obey God rather than men. Peter and the others respond just as they had before. Nothing has changed. His answer is not only inspiring it, should be the control principle of our lives. Life is complex, sometimes very difficult to navigate. We all eventually find ourselves in situations where we're not exactly sure what to do or how to do it, right? Whether that's in our personal lives, our work lives, our spiritual lives. I mean, we're, we're going to find ourselves in situations and think, huh, what do I do next? Well, we know how to start, right? Even if we don't know the whole path or every single thing that God is going to ask us to do in that situation, we do know the first step. We do know where to start, and it's with Acts 5, 29. This is our controlling principle. We must obey God rather than men. In our relationships, in our trials, in our planning, in our opportunities, that's the starting square. And from there, we seek the Lord and go to his word for wisdom, and we wait on the leading of the Spirit to then show us what he would want us to do in that individual situation. But this is the control principle. Now, we be Acts 529 Christians. We have to obey God rather than men. And rather than, not just men out there, not just the human government or the human culture, but I must obey God rather than men, and that includes myself. I have to obey God rather than myself. I'm a man. You're a woman or a man. 
And, and I have to obey God rather than self, rather than my culture, rather than my government. If those two things are in conflict, then God is the one that we obey. Verse 30, the God of our fathers raised up Jesus, whom you had murdered by hanging him on a tree. God exalted this man to his right hand as ruler and savior to grant repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. We are witnesses of these things. And so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. It's true, Peter had condemned them for the murder of Jesus Christ. That was necessary so that he could diagnose them with the terminal illness that they had, the terminal illness of sin. So he could say, hey, you guys are murderers. And they knew what that meant. They were religious people. They understood the law of God, at least on a, you know, commandment level. And so it's not that he was gloating or it's not that he was trying to be mean to them or anything like that. This is necessary. He says, hey, you're guilty of sin. In this case, it's the murder of the Messiah. Uh Uh-oh. But the message of the church that morning, it wasn't a declaration of war. He didn't say, hey, you hate us. Guess what? We hate you too. We're declaring war on you and against the Sanhedrin and against anyone in Israel who doesn't stand with us. We see once again the offer of forgiveness here. How many times is God going to offer these guys forgiveness? Don't don't you just start to get your hackles up? Annas and Caiaphas keep getting these opportunities after the things they did to the Lord. And yet, what is God doing again and again and again and again? He keeps sending opportunities, real opportunities, that these guys might be forgiven of their sin. Again, he was sending a chance to this group of people who had committed the very worst sin imaginable. No one, I'm going to go on record as saying, can commit a greater sin than murdering the Son of God, the Savior of the world, the Messiah foretold from the Garden of Eden. There is no worse sin than that. They win for worse sin. (laughs) But even now, the Lord reached out again to save them. Hey, remember last time when I told you the the same thing, that you're going to be under God's judgment, but he wants to save you from your sin? Yeah, I remember that. That was great. Now there's 12 of us here telling you the same thing. It's amazing, the grace of God. So much of our culture is dominated by an us versus them mentality. There's us and there's them whether it's political or religious or ideological in one way or another, there's always a big emphasis on who's on what side and who's got what label. And if you're on that side, you're the enemy. And if you want to not be my enemy, this is who you have to be and where you have to stand and what you have to say. Thanks be to God that he doesn't simply discard his enemies like that, that God doesn't act like that to his enemies. He pursues them with grace again and again and again. And if our father is gracious like that, then his children should be gracious like that. There are a lot of thems in life. There's us here. There's a lot of thems. It's fine to disagree. It's fine to contend. It's fine to have opinions. But the thing we always need to remember is that the thems are significant to the Lord. Saul the Pharisee was very probably present at this trial full of hatred toward Jesus and his followers, and yet God's heart was full of love toward that man, even though he's going to murder Stephen in a little while. The Lord's looking down on Saul of Tarsus and saying, oh man, have I got plans for that guy. The greatest Christian history has ever seen is, is sitting right there. Yeah, the one who wants to kill everybody. I love him so much. I can't wait for him to turn to me and for me to work in his life. Verse 33, when they heard this, they were enraged, wanted to kill them. A Pharisee named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law who was respected by all the people, stood up in the Sanhedrin and 
ordered the men to be taken outside for a little while. He said to them, men of Israel, be careful about what you're going to do to these men. God used an unbelieving Pharisee to save his apostles' lives that day. He can do great things in the most amazing ways. If need be, he can feed his people by ravens. He can put tax money in the mouth of a fish. Our God can do whatever he wants to accomplish his purposes. That's an exciting thought. What are we to make of Gamaliel and his advice in this section? On the one hand, there's some truth in what he is going to say. His ultimate point will be you can't win in a fight against God. Okay. But on the other hand, it's clear he does not believe. Uh, he's just as guilty as the people who want to murder these guys, right? Uh, he equates the Christians with two failed revolutionary groups, and he, like the others in the council, was overtly ignoring the clear work of God right in their midst. They knew, they saw miracles happening, and they just refused to acknowledge them. They could not be denied, so they were just overlooked. Now, in some part of his heart, obviously Gamaliel wanted to know the Lord and follow him, yet he was unwilling to set aside his own self-righteousness. Yeah, I want to know God, but not on his terms. I'll know God on my own terms. God's doing all this stuff right in front of me. That's not my cup of tea. I don't care about these miracles. I don't care about all of these things that are happening. God's going to come to me my way through my Pharisee mentality Otherwise, I'm going to reject what I'm seeing. And so, though he's much less violent than the murderous Sadducees, he's no better off in the spiritual sense. All that to say, killers or moral religious people, they all need the gospel just the same. They're all just as lost and all just as blind and all need the truth. Verse 36, not long ago, Thutis rose up claiming to be somebody, and a group of about 400 men rallied to him. He was killed, and all his partisans were dispersed and came to nothing. After this man, Judas the Galilean rose up in the days of the census and attracted a following. That man also perished, and all his partisans were scattered. Gamaliel makes a couple of false equivalences here. The church was not a revolutionary group. Plus, his analogy is, hey, these other guys had some ideas. They raised a ruckus. Once they died, the movement died. But since Jesus had died and rose again, multiplied thousands had been added to the group. At this point, the church was easily 20 times the size of Thutis' group had been. And so while seemingly thoughtful, his argument is deeply flawed. Uh, it, it doesn't really hold up if they were thinking about it. 38, and now I tell you, stay away from these men and leave them alone. For if the plan or this work is of men, it will be overthrown. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You may even be found fighting against God. And so they were persuaded by him. Gamaliel tried to position himself as neutral. Let's wait and see. But when dealing with God, there's no such thing as neutrality. To not be for Jesus Christ is to be against him. So Gamaliel, what you're saying is, hey, this might be from God of heaven. Are you going to do anything about that? No. Are you, you going to go find out if these guys are actually speaking from God? You said they might be. Yeah, they might be. Are you going to go, like, investigate that? No, I'm good. We're good. You good? I'm good. This is crazy. To not be for Jesus Christ is to be against him. Gamaliel was, used, uh, was being used to protect the lives of the apostles for now, but he demonstrates that kind of hard-heartedness which does not reject God but refuses to bow to Jesus Christ. There's plenty of people who say, oh, yeah, I believe in God. Okay, well, will you bow your knee to Jesus Christ? No, I'm a good person. No, I, you know, I, I, I've done more good than bad in my life. You're just Gamaliel, man. You're just as blind as the Sadducees who want to murder people. Now, that's offensive to people to hear it, but 
the end result is the same. Yeah, okay, they may have stage four terminal illness. You've got stage two terminal illness. Guess what? You'll get there. That's the deal. It says the council was persuaded by him. His advice took murder off the table for the time being. As for staying away from these men and leaving them alone, well, they weren't that persuaded. <laughs> Verse 40, after they called in the apostles, they had them flogged and ordered them not to speak in the name of Jesus and release them. What the apostles suffered here was not only a brutal physical toll, but also a great injustice. The Sanhedrin grants them their freedom on one hand, acknowledging, yeah, you haven't done anything, but then meets out a punishment as if they were criminals. And once again, they're told to drop the name of Jesus. So much for leaving these men alone. Verse 41, then they went out from the presence of the Sanhedrin rejoicing that they were counted worthy to be dishonored on behalf of the name. Every day in the temple complex and in various homes, they continued teaching and proclaiming the good news that Jesus is the Messiah. As Christians, we sometimes get bogged down with disappointment that we aren't recognized for the work that we do in the world or in the church. There's a lot of warning about that sort of mentality in the Bible. But in our weaker moments, we sometimes might think, hey, where's my recognition? I'm worthy of some public honoring here. But the spirit-filled apostles have the exact opposite mentality. It's remarkable. They're full of gladness that they were able to receive dishonor for the sake of their king. They rejoiced with great excitement. And then they kept at the business of boldly preaching the good news each and every day. Boldness, meekness. How can both operate in the life of a Christian or in, in a church? Well, we see it here. These are the characteristics when God's people are full of the Holy Spirit. And so as we go out into the world, we want to go meekly. That means we're willing to lay down our rights and even our lives if that's how the Lord leads us. It means remembering that we're not out there to destroy our enemies or to declare war against them. We're out there to rescue them. And we're to go out with real biblical boldness, which means publicly preaching the good news that Jesus is the Messiah. In verse 31, Peter identifies him as the Savior. Warren Wearsby writes this. I thought it was pretty great. The title Savior was not new to the members of the council, for the word was used for physicians who save people's lives, philosophers who solve people's problems, statesmen who save people from danger and war. It was even applied to the emperor. But only Jesus Christ is the true and living Savior who rescues from sin and death and judgment. For all who will trust in him, it was a bold witness. You know, throughout this text, the Sanhedrin keep wondering, where's it all going to end? They think that at the beginning, and then that's kind of the point of Gamaliel's advice. He says, hey, we don't know where this is going to end. Maybe it'll just fizzle out. Who can say? Uh, we know how it ends, right? It ends in Revelation 19 when we return with Jesus, and he comes to judge the unbelieving world. Before that, we're sent out on a mission of mercy, and so let's go willingly, meekly, and boldly proclaiming that Jesus is the Savior and rejoicing as we go. Amen?